Hello, and welcome to this episode of Special Ed Rising, No Parent Left Behind. I'm your host, Mark Ingracia, and I have over 34 years of experience as a classroom teacher, parent coach, and advocate. This is a podcast for parents and caregivers of children along the spectrum of disabilities, but welcomes everyone interested in learning about topics from the world of exceptional needs, educational services, health and wellness, fitness, nutrition for you and your child, and more. Thank you so much for joining me. And if you like the show, please subscribe, like, comment, and tell your friends about it. In this episode, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Olivier Bernier, director of the new documentary entitled Forget Me Not. In the film, as three-year-old Emilio prepares to start school, his family finds itself embroiled in a challenge all too common for children with disabilities, to secure the right to an exclusive education. Cornered in one of the most segregated education systems, New York City Public Schools, filmmaker Olivier and his wife Hilda turn the camera on themselves and their child with Down syndrome as they navigate a Byzantine system originally designed to silo children with disabilities. Award-winning director Olivier Bernier lives and breathes to tell stories that explore the human condition. Part American and part Quebecois, Olivier is also the co-founder and creative director of the production company Rota 6 Films, specializing in documentary and commercial films. Olivier has had the honor of having many of his films regularly screened at many festivals, including winning the Grand Jury Prize at Slamdance, Opening Night at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, Montreal World Film Festival, Doc NYC, Big Sky, Ben Film Festival, Rooftop Film Series, Houston World Fest, Walla Walla, and has received Vimeo staff picks as well as been picked up for distribution by outlets such as The New Yorker, Uninterrupted, and Nowness, amongst others. Along with his commercial work, Olivier continues to develop, produce, and direct original content that aims to put a hyper-focus on topics that can change the way we look at the world. I will include the website ForgetMeNotDocumentary.com on my resource page at SpecialEdRising.com so you can utilize the resources it provides. Now please join me in welcoming Olivier Bernier as he guides us to another win. Hello and welcome, Olivier Bernier. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks so much for being here and allowing me to be part of the publicity for such an incredible, incredible film. I've been, I've seen it twice, uh, ready to see it again. I've been telling everyone about it. It's such a moving film and so poignant. And uh, I could get into the film aspect of it for a long time, but I have so many things I want to talk about contextually as far as what's going on in the system and your journey through it and what's happened since that time. So if that's okay, we'll just dive into this world. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. First, I want to congratulate you on your employment of neurodiverse film crew. I thought that was incredible. Was this your idea to do that, to seek out professionals who were neurodiverse, or did you just were you looking to give aspiring uh, people in the industry the gig, or how did that happen? It, it was really just um, when we started making the film, you knew, we knew we were making a film about inclusive education and it just occurred to me, we have to have an inclusive crew if we're going to make a film about inclusivity. And then part of it was just, I think me as a father thinking about, well, I hope one day, you know, not that he has to, but I hope one day Emilio can join me on a film set. So how would this work? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Was it hard to find people or was, were these people, did any of these people have experience before or did you just kind of give people opportunities? 
So um, some people did have experience, actually, which was great. There's actually a, a camp called Zeno Mountain Farm where they, it's like a film camp um, for, for people of all abilities. So um, some of them had experience working there and came to the set kind of understanding how a set ran. And some people had no experience. And, you know, we, we treated them as an apprentice and taught them what we could. So any day really that we had a larger setup, like an interview setup with lighting and a full crew, it was an inclusive crew. And then, you know, documentaries sometimes is just like, you know, me and the sound guy. So those days, you know, were obviously there, there was no, no crew. So, um, but yeah, whenever we could have a crew, we had an inclusive crew and it was a great, not only a great experience for myself and for the rest of the film crew that, you know, sometimes can be a little, you know, just it's, it's a job, but having an inclusive film crew kind of made it a better experience for everybody and, and kind of reminded us why we were all there. Yeah, because, you know, people think film, it's all exciting and stuff, but it's the drudgery of the day to day. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of time in between and setting up and all those type of things. So <laughs> you need patience. So that's awesome. What compelled you to make the movie? Can you explain that to the audience? What compelled you to make this film? Sure. Well, you know, going all the way back, I guess, you know, the day Emilio was born, I was just completely unprepared for him. Uh, I had never met anyone with Down syndrome, spent significant time with anyone that had a significant disability. And um, part of my journey since Emilio was born was trying to understand why. And when I looked at it, I thought about my own schooling. I went to high school with 2,500 kids, I think, and I never saw anybody with a disability. And that kind of led me to thinking, why is that? And, uh, you know, what's going on today? Are schools more inclusive? I thought, you know, inclusive education was the norm today, especially being in New York in a really progressive city. Yes, and, right. uh, you know, yes, little did I know. <laughs> Where did you, where so that, did you that kind of led me to, so I grew up in uh, New Jersey, you know, more of the countryside of New Jersey and, uh, yeah, the schools are big because it's a rural area and just kind of everyone collects into one school. You didn't see a lot of people with disabilities. I didn't see them because they were just segregated for, uh, from us. They were hidden from us. There's no way just statistically in a school of 2,500 students that there wasn't one kid with a significant disability. Um, yeah. they were just segregated. <laughs> us we didn't think about them and you know it's just it's the way things were and the way things still are in a lot of places we'll get into this more just amazing to me to discover how segregated new york is i had worked in a school for the deaf these 4201 schools deaf and blind and constantly fighting for a budget fighting for money to be able to access whatever was available technologically for the kids to be able to bring them up to kind of as equal as their public school peers. And then the inclusion start to happen. I know that the schools have kind of moved in those directions, but to learn how segregated New York is. And again, we both saying, you know, it's such a progressive state. It was a shock. That was a real shock to me. Before we get into it, how is Emilio doing? How's he, how's he been? Can you tell us just a little bit about his personality? Like some of the beautiful things he brings to this world? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that Emilio has taught me about life is to, you know, Emilio, and I'll, I'll probably say it a lot during this interview, but Emilio is Emilio. Like he just, he is himself. Like he, 
he understands himself in a way that I think most of us are either too shy to understand ourselves or too guarded about, you know, he just, um, he just has a beautiful personality and, um, you know, we have a daughter now and he just shows his love every day. And, uh, and he's also, I mean, he's just musically inclined, something I'm not, which is really awesome to see. <laughs> um, I love it. I wanted to ask about how he's doing with his guitar. If he's, uh, <laughs> he's progressing. Yeah. Well, he's, he's still strumming on his guitar. Um, he has a full drum set, you know, we, we've had to kind of put it in another room because sometimes it's a little too loud with the baby, <laughs> but I mean, he's, he just loves music. He loves rhythm and, um, he loves dancing and just anything to do with music. So he's, uh, he's just a lot of fun to be around. And, you know, I think he, uh, whenever he's, you know, he has bad days like everyone else, but, uh, you know, when he's, when he's himself and having a good day, like he's just such a joy to be around and he makes every day, everyone's day brighter. That's wonderful. You know, it's funny when in the scene at the beginning, when he's born, there's barely a few minutes before the doctor kind of tells you, you know, of the, of the disability or the possibility of it. You know, I think for a lot of people, who aren't, you're just not prepared for that, right? So it becomes, comes as a bit of a, a shock, probably, I would imagine. How did that impact you initially when it first, when you first heard? And, and did you wish you had a little bit more time before the doctor? And it's not a knock against the disability, just, you know, there's the relief of having a baby, you're just overjoyed. And immediately, a doctor puts something kind of an onus on you with, with the disability. But then you find this beautiful human being, right? And how, in how, enriched your life is as a result of who this person is it's beautiful did you kind of how did that feel at the very beginning when you when you learned was that overwhelming yeah I, I think um you know you have this expectation especially for your first child that it's just going to be like the most euphoric beautiful moment of your life and uh you know it, it wasn't that with with Emilio's birth it was a really challenging moment probably one of the most challenging of my life and uh you know, still, still one that I'm trying to wrap my head around. Truthfully, it's maybe something that I'll never fully wrap my head around. But you know, I didn't understand what Down syndrome was at the time. As as I said, I'd never met anyone with Down syndrome. Certainly not an adult with Down syndrome. And to me, Down syndrome, when I heard that, I just I thought it was a. I didn't know what it was. You know, I, I didn't think. You know, the first thought that popped in my head was that Emilio is going to be you know, in his room the rest of his life, or, you know, I'm just thinking the worst thoughts. And, you know, certainly there was a better way to maybe present that information. I don't, I don't think there's any easy way to do it. So I don't blame the doctors. It was, it was reality. Um, you know, I, I more blame just society in general for not having me prepared for that moment, you know, because what I found out pretty quickly is that, you know, Down syndrome isn't, you know, doom and gloom. It's not that life sentence that everyone thinks it is. It's just a different set of challenges. And especially in today's world, Emilio has the opportunity to live a really fulfilling life. And pretty shortly after, you know, a quick story, when he was born, um, it was a really rough 24 hours. You can see it in the movie. But that night, that first night, um, it wasn't sure if Emilio actually had Down syndrome for us. Because the way the doctor presented the news, he said, your son might have Down syndrome. He shows markers of Down syndrome. 
So Ilda and I, my wife had a, we had question marks, you know, we weren't sure. And the pediatrician that was helping us, she was so sweet to us. And she reached out to the head geneticist of NYU and he was in a conferences all day and he came at 9 p.m. that night and he looked at Emilio um, and he said, you know, I can positively identify that he has Down syndrome. Now ask me questions. And he just listened to us for, for about an hour. And he said one thing that I'll never forget, which he said, when my parents had me, when I was born, they didn't know if I would end up being the head geneticist of NYU or if I would be in a drug rehab center later in life. You know, they, they had no idea. And all right. they could do was to help me achieve right. my full potential and could do, do the same for your child. So, you know, I took that advice and ran with it. That's, I always think about it. I love that. That's really beautiful. It's so true. I mean, I feel like we all have, we have, we all have our own stuff, right? <laughs> some of us keep it <laughs> hidden and some of it's more external, but we all have our challenges and it's the acceptance of our differences that I think make us a community, you know, and it's the rejection of that, that unfortunately keeps us apart. Some of the most beautiful people I've ever met are people with Down syndrome. They're just full of joy and love and openness. And I'm talking adults, you know, that I've met, um, teenagers, adults. And I find myself like I want to hang out with them more <laughs> because I just felt they really just kind of lived from the heart. You know, they live purely. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a lesson for all of us, I think, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, speaking of it, how has this, you know, changed you as in your perception as a dad going into it and how you have been had to father since that point? How has that changed for you? Yeah, well, I, you know, one of the biggest things I think is that I've always been quiet, you know, a little, maybe a little on the shy side. And when Emilio was born, I realized that, hey, I'm going to have to step up and I'm going to have to show him how to speak up for himself. And I need to do that by example. So it really changed the my outlook on on speaking up and and doing something. And, you know, making the film was part of that. I wanted not only to make the world a little better for him, I wanted to try to improve the world for everyone with a disability that are still, you know, having a hard time being accepted into society. So the whole experience has certainly taught me a lot about trying to make a difference in the world, you know, and not necessarily, you know, I'm still not that guy that's going to be picketing necessarily or, you know, making speeches, but I certainly want to keep making films that that can improve the lives of people. Everybody has their vehicle and who knows, you never know. You might be up there making the speeches at some point, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) You've created this, this opening for yourself where people can see, you know, what you've, what you bring to the table. And if it's the film avenue, then that's great. And maybe it's more. Is this the first film you've ever made? No, like, I, I made it another feature prior and, and filmmaking is my career. So it's it was just a natural thing. You know, when, when we started making the movie, it was it was more of a, I didn't know what the film would look like or what it would be about. But I knew pretty soon after he was born that I wanted to use this craft that I'd been honing for, you know, 10, 15 years. I wanted to use it to make his world a little better. And I I just didn't know what shape or form that would take. And there was a couple starts that went nowhere. And then finally, 
Alana, which is a foundation out of Brazil, actually was um, had a grant to make a film about inclusive education. I was like, wow, this is perfect. Wow. And we uh, we applied for the grant and it was like a worldwide competition and they selected our our project. And, awesome. you know, the, the rest is history. <laughs> stars aligning, right? That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> has, seen, has he seen it? Or seen He's seen part of it. I mean, he, he still doesn't really sit through full movies, to be honest with you, which we're, we're working on. He'll maybe get through three quarters of a Pixar film, but uh, he we've <laughs> we've watched the film in parts and especially the beginning of the film, you know, which is like mostly our family footage. And um, right. he likes to watch that. So he does. Does he get a kick just seeing himself on the screen at all? Or is it just unaffected by it? <laughs> Yeah, he get he gets a kick out of it, and it's funny because when he sees himself as a baby now, he thinks it's his sister. Sometimes he's like Camilla, because <laughs> he, you know, when you don't realize that you were a baby at some point, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> How old is Emilio? So Emilio is seven years old now. So it's been seven. three years since we ended filming. Yeah. Wow. Okay. A friend of mine asked me to ask you, um, just to tell you that she was so taken you did such an amazing job of the storytelling and and i agree wholeheartedly and she felt so invested and still feels invested it's like you want to know what happens next and that was just something that texturally you brought something to this film that was immediately accessible i felt the lenses used this whatever there was an intimacy to it from the start the pace of it kept you moving with you and wanting to know what's going to happen next and discover just really beautifully done. And so she wanted me to tell you that, <laughs> that you have another. That's a out. great compliment. So do you want to talk about what inclusion is for people who may not be so educated on it? Sure. You know, I, I think uh, Trisha Lampron in the, in the film has the best definition for, for a non-expert like myself, but it's just, you know, inclusion in terms of schooling is learning from each other and with each other. So people of all different races, genders, abilities uh, are in the same room and, and basically learning from each other and with each other. There's more complex definitions that, you know, PhD, you know, doctors use and educators use. But I think that's the one that really rings true for me. You know, it's just about being in a place and being accepted. And, you know, when I think about the classroom and its importance, you know, there's obviously academics, um, which is why schools exist. But really, schooling is your first entrance into society. It's the first time you leave mom and dad. And you got to kind of make it on your own with guidance. But the classroom is your first entrance into society. And really, classrooms should mirror the society we want to live in. So you know, I, I personally want to live in a society where I can meet all different kinds of people and have all different kinds of opinions and, and learn from that. And you know, that right. I think that's what an inclusive classroom is. Well, your film, it connects with this, the uh, 70, 1972 coverage of Willowbrook with Geraldo Rivera and the attention that he and other reporters brought at the time. And, and this is kind of like a, a continuation in a sense years later, because we're still in a position where these disabled people are, are, are segregated, maybe not as severely as it was in those days, but and very similarly, you know, because you're still separated, bottom line, from society. So for you, does that, does that give you a sense of a higher purpose with the film? Um, I know that's what you're shooting to educate people. 
Do you feel in that arena with those people that brought that news to the attention of the, of the public? Yeah, well, I you know I discovered the the Willowbrook film just by by talking to Thomas Hare. He's the one that that told me about it in the interview. You see the interview when he's talking about it, and I went and I'm like, I gotta see this, huh. and that that was really making the film. You know, the film is really um, you know to what your friend mentioned earlier, and and how the beginning of the film feels. It's it's experiential because it was literally my experience going through the process of making the film. And I learned about Willowbrook and I saw that and I was like, well, you know, we don't have the institutions anymore, but there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of echoes of the institution and what I, in what I see in the schooling today. Um, There's another side of that, which is we don't have the institutions anymore. And it shows that what happens when people come together and say, you know, we're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to, this isn't okay. This is inhumane and we need to, shut these institutions down. So it does give me a sense of optimism as well that they don't exist anymore. But there's really strong echoes in the school system today. When you went to Letchworth, you went to Letchworth Rehab. And what was that experience like when you walked in there? Was it, could you feel the history there? Did it feel very onerous or just how did it affect you? We went to Letchworth Mainly, the main idea was because we wanted to just get B-roll. You know, B-roll is just the footage that gets overlaid over interviews. And um, we saw that, you know, Letchworth still exists. And so we went there, me and the cinematographer, who who was also a very good friend of mine and knew me very well. And we, we went without a sound guy. And, and you know, we went into the, the buildings that are still there. And we found all these reports that were strewn about the floor and just the weight and the gravity hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, and I, I thought I could, I could, you could almost hear the children still. Um, it was that present. I started looking at the reports and I, you know, at that point, Emilio was getting evaluated and, you know, at that point, the DP, the cinematographer said like, I need to interview you because you're going through something right now. Um, so it was unplanned and, and that that was kind of like the first time that he started filming me just because it was it was remarkable it was like nothing i'd ever experienced before and i think that one thing while making the film that i realize is that this is a part of history that's not really talked about enough because you know if we forget that this happened it can happen again and um so i really wanted to make a strong point to include that in the film I mean, I remember hearing about it when I was a kid and seeing images. And since while researching for this interview, I went back and I watched some videos and and learned some more. It's just, it's really, there's no words to describe the horror of what was going on there. And then how part of the solution was to literally put some of these people just out on the streets with nothing. And, And that was supposed to be part of the solution to show that they were doing something. But obviously... They weren't preparing these people and they went into situations that were probably even worse than where they were because they weren't capable of being able to take care of themselves. Really, really horrible. And, and, you know, talking about how the system, how things have changed, but they haven't necessarily changed. We talk about what's happening in Florida with, with book banning. And we talk about what's happening with rejection of gender differences and the new laws and things like that. It's just another segregation of, of a group of people. And it really makes you wonder like what has to happen systemically to make 
make that stop, you know, where we can all be accepted. Do you have any thoughts? Has that brought up thoughts for you throughout the process? Absolutely. I, you know, that the, the word segregation, first of all, obviously conjures the civil rights movement and what's happening today is just, it's awful. And it, it makes me think that people are scared when someone isn't like themselves, you know, it scares people for some reason. And I think part of that is because they haven't been exposed. They weren't exposed from a young age. And that's kind of the benefit of inclusive education. You know, another quick story, there was a a friend's son was over um, who doesn't go to an inclusive classroom and, and he couldn't understand why Emilio doesn't speak. And he kept coming to me and, and asking, you know, why doesn't he talk? Why doesn't he talk? Which is a fair question. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And I said, well, you know, Emilio communicates in different ways. And you know, meanwhile, Emilio in his class is the most popular kid in his class. He gets invited to all the birthday parties, all of the birthday parties. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't matter. And one of his friends, um, my wife was at a play date recently, and one of his friend's mother said that her daughter was learning how to sign because she said that Emilio speaks a different language and I want to learn Emilio's language. Um, so she was motivated to start signing and th- that's the power of inclusive education. You know, that's the power of having an inclusive classroom. So I think, you know, just to sum that point up, you know, when we're yes. exposed to things at a young age, we become unafraid of them. I agree. I agree. Have you, do you use sign language with Emilio at all? We do use sign language. It's, um, since a very young age, my wife has really worked with him to be able to communicate his needs through sign language sign language because his his verbal skills are they're they're a challenge for him it's hard for him to pronounce certain words and sometimes we we just he's saying something and we don't know what he's saying so him being able to sign has been a huge help and how's he do with the sign very good um there's some signs i don't know which (laughs) i'm sad to say my wife knows knows more than i do but it's uh it's been a really useful tool to one alleviate some frustrations that he has because as you can imagine when you're trying to say something or trying to communicate something and people aren't hearing you, it can be frustrating. So that's been really helpful. Absolutely. I, you know, I saw it in my students. I see it in some of the kids I, I work with now. My mom has dementia. She's really lost her ability to speak for the most part. And even with her, with the dementia, she still will try and then stop and just roll her eyes. And it's like, you, she still feels that frustration of not being able to get her words out and get that message out. Mm-hmm. And there's so many options and so many ways to do it. And I think part of my frustration through the years is seeing delays in the process of, of, of giving children the correct adaptions or pushing one avenue of, of communication when it's failing for too long and they're missing a lot of time and, and opportunities. And there's so many cool things out there now that are available for kids. And so just as a signer myself, I'm really, it's really cool to hear that the signing's happening. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's such a great, um, we actually have a version of the film that that is signed in ASL. Just going through that process of having someone signing the film was just such an amazing experience and, so and cool. seeing how expressive it is. Yeah. Yeah. It really is a beautiful language. Hilda is a special ed teacher. She's still teaching. She's, she's no longer practicing. She's no longer teaching, but uh, she is yeah. a special ed teacher. Yeah. Was she feeling that, that she had a, a bit of a, a better understanding of the process from the start because she was in the field. Did she have a feeling or a sense that the system was broken? 
the way it to the degree it is. Yeah, well, Ilda's experience as a teacher, I mean, she was a tenured teacher. She was she had a lot of experience in the classroom and she had a lot of experience writing IEPs, so she understood the process to a certain extent. Um she she was a ninth grade teacher, so she was generally um with older students, so not necessarily at the, you know, kindergarten level or pre-K level. But yeah, she she I mean in the beginning she she was the expert and she still is to this day. She knows much more. She knows all the acronyms. Let, let me put it that way. <laughs> there are a lot of acronyms, <laughs> which was a challenge in making the film, you know, because, you know, we wanted the film to be understandable to someone that's not in the profession. With Ilda, she, she had a belief in what she was taught as an educator. So going into this experience with Emilio, she trusted her fellow educators, you know, that they had the best interest for Emilio. So it was a challenge for her to get over the idea that perhaps they didn't know what was best for Emilio. And that, that, that took an adjustment. Um, You know, I came from a very outside perspective and I was skeptical of everything. So it was just easier for me to, to see it differently. Um, But it will tell you that, you know, being at the other side of the table was a completely different experience. And that's one reason why we thought it was so important to share what it's like to be the parent of a child with a disability going through the IEP process, because, you know, I don't think educators really get that experience ever unless they have a child with a disability like Ilda did. But, um, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, Ilda is, she is not only not only smart, but uh, she really has a lot of empathy and a lot of understanding. So I think when she was patient, but when they saw how they were treating Emilio, she wasn't going to have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that certainly came across. She's a very strong woman. <laughs> Definitely comes across. <laughs> Big heart, but not going to take it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> And I love that about both of you because you went in, I mean, you had Sarah, your advocate with you and, you know, she informed you uh, how to go about approaching the, the meeting and you, and you didn't back down. You know, you said, this is what we want. The problem is that they kind of have their minds made up. You know, they placate with a lot of this, a lot of those words that just like appeasing to parents to kind of get them to kind of maybe stop talking and stop pushing <laughs> their agenda just so you know, if I keep saying it over and over again, you'll just stop. Or if I, obviously, if I don't give you what you need, eventually you'll just see that this is a mountain too high to climb and I'm not going to do it anymore. But I mean, parents have been fighting this fight for a long time before you and since, and it'll go on. Unfortunately, you have leaders and people in schools that it's a business, you know, and I remember in latter years of my experience being told that it's a business. You know, I always thought it was a school where <laughs> you say, you know, you, ed- you educate academics, but you also nurture students and you nurture the human being. Um, and when the, that cold word came into play, it was a real turnoff. And so it comes down to numbers and money. And when you noticed that, I mean, it felt really like Amelia was just a number at that point. I was so happy <laughs> when, you, when you spoke out about the grid. I was just, uh, I thought in the moment it had to be, I mean, how did it feel? It must've felt like, I mean, did it feel like it's a dagger when you see my son's not even on this, this, the radar here, you know, on this arc. 
How did, how did that, that must've been shocking for you at the beginning, because these are human beings that are not even being considered. Yeah. I, th- I think the first thing that went through my mind, I mean, honestly, the first thing that went through my mind is this can't be real. Like this, this is like, I mean, they're rehashing a scene from Forrest Gump right now. Like this can't be real. <laughs> um, you know, but the soon after that, it, when I did realize that this is really what they're they're trying to sell me on, that what they're trying to say is they're they're telling me my son is a line. You know, my son contains multitudes. Like he's not, you can't fit him on a line. And if you can't even make a chart that fits him, then what? Why are we even talking? You know, well, it not- was imaginary part of the line. He's not even on the line, right? He's not even on the line. Yeah. So one, it's you know, how can you judge a student this way um, as a, a point of data, you know, it's it's just awful in so many regards. But two, going back to your point about the school being a business, you know, if, if schools are really businesses, they would all be, they would all be bankrupt. They would all be fired that, you know, they, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, shareholders, they speak up, they tell, they oust CEOs, but for some reason schools can't change or at least not until they get new leadership. And, you know, so I think what's happening in the New York City's school system is they're really rehashing really old ideas and old ways to separate people and old ways to define people that aren't up to date and aren't with our modern ways of understanding what humans are. It really is amazing how IDEA can be interpreted so differently and so broadly in according to the state and the district. And it just seems like to me, it's like this was this was an act that was passed that, you know, wear a seatbelt or <laughs> you get a ticket. It's like it's pretty clear. So how did they get away with being so interpretive and so lax in how they follow the act in 504? You know, they're just not living up to what it's supposed to be. And so how are they getting away with it? It's it feels criminal. Well, I heard an interesting thing recently. Um, you know, there, there's this idea of least restrictive environment that's written into IDEA. And, you know, that's that was written there because it was supposed to be a positive thing. You know, we start children in the least restrictive environment. But this idea of LRE, least restrictive environment, is actually often used to segregate children. You know, for example, New York City says that if you have a para with a child that's more restrictive than putting him in a segregated class of six children. Um, when really that accommodation could be so helpful for a child to succeed in a larger class, you know, Absolutely. general education class. Mm-hmm. So this idea of LRE is almost become a way to segregate children and a weird loophole in the law. And once you look at it that way, you realize that maybe it's time that we update the law. Yeah. It's such backwards thinking that a para would be a disadvantage <laughs> for a segregated classroom. That doesn't even make sense to me. But they yeah, get away with it, that. They get away with that. You know, I'll, I'll say one more thing about, you know, New York being a business or the education system being a business. You know, in New York in 2021, they spent over a billion dollars sending children to private schools in both lawsuits and, and actually tuition. So, you know, it's that's a billion dollars that could go towards making the school system more inclusive, right. you know? Right. So I, I don't know how that makes business sense. <laughs> it's kind of reminiscent of Aiden's story. Out in the Hamptons where they were like a three quarters of a million dollars were spent to keep them out 
of an inclusive classroom when that money could have been so productive the other way to accommodate and make that make that available to him. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think needs to be done? <laughs> I mean, there, you know, I, I found precedent in um, New York City. Uh, it was a protest back in 60, 64, I believe it was. It was a civil rights protest, a walkout because, you know, segregation, same issue. And um, they said, you know, it's, it's about the money. Each student is, is money. So they don't have the students, they lose the money. Is that something that you feel, I mean, at what point does something like walkouts? Peaceful demonstrations. At what point do you feel like we need to go to something like that? Or do you feel that's even an effective route? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I haven't, you know, honestly, I haven't thought too much about that. But what I what I have thought about is how do we build a bridge to understanding people with disabilities and what they need? You know, before Amelia was born, I never, I never thought about disabilities. I never thought what it was like to raise a child with a disability or what it was like to send a child with a disability to school. And I think the biggest thing that we need to do is really build a bridge to parents that have typically developing children. You know, what are the advantages of an inclusive classroom for your child? Right. It's actually, right. there. there's a lot of them. You know, there's, first, you have more professionals in the classroom. You have methods of teaching that are, um, that, you know, reach the margins, the smartest kid in the class and the kid that has the biggest challenges. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so everybody benefits from a more inclusive environment and trying to reach out to parents of typically developing children and sharing those benefits with them, I think could make a huge difference. Um, you know, I, we go to a lot of rallies for people with disabilities and sadly, it's mostly people and families of people with disabilities there, you know, and I, I don't know how effective that is, to be honest. I think it's important for us, you know, it's important to stick together but mm -hmm. really, you know, what we need to be doing is is trying to build bridges to people that might not think about it on a daily basis and say, you know, this is a, not only something, a wrong that needs to be righted, but this is also something that would be better for everybody. So we should mm -hmm. all be working together to make this happen. Right. And not to put you on the spot, do you have any thoughts about how we might go about doing something like that? Yeah, well, it's it's something that I, I think about daily, um, you know, how, how do we do that? So, you know, one idea when I was making the film is that I really tried to make the film for the version of me before I had Emilio. What, how could I tell this story in a way that would be interesting to someone that's never thought about disabilities? How can I build that bridge? And, you know, so first and foremost was let's let's tell a good story. Let's make the film good on its own. You know, that, right. that was our our mission with it. Um, but then how do we get it out to, to people? Uh, we've succeeded in some sense, in some sense, because the film is being shown in a lot of venues that, you know, film festivals and places that people wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, it's not a film that you might click, that you might choose to watch. So when you're in those kinds of settings, um, you're more likely to see it. But what's really encouraged me is that the films are being shown in a lot of universities and to future educators that aren't necessarily special education teachers. And I think that's where the film could have a huge difference. Um, but yeah, there needs to be some kind of PR campaign. There needs to be 
some collective, you know, effort to try to, you know, not to share the film, but to try to get this idea out there that everybody benefits from inclusive education. Well, I think, you know, the message and the film itself has legs for a long time. I think it's one of those type of films that can be shown for as far into the future as you can imagine to educate people. I really do think it, it's not only just an enjoyable film, because you see the family dynamic and you see the beauty and the love that you and Hilda have for Emilio and he has for you, but you see, you know, the reality of the system and what's going on. There's just so much to it, but I really do think it's a very effective film that students and teachers could learn a lot from and administrators really <laughs> need to learn a lot from. So you quote, and, and to kind of like in line with what we were talking about earlier with uh, individuals with disabilities who are in inclusive classrooms, you quote in the film, that they broadly do better in reading and math and more, and more of them opt for graduation and are more apt to be employed and live independently. With that, after your experience at Henderson, did you ever, did you and Hilda ever talk about the possibility of moving to Boston and going there? Because it seems to be like, well, that, that's kind of like, seems like a gold standard for what an inclusion school should look like, you know? It, it absolutely is. And I'd be lying if I, I didn't say that I, I went on Zillow and looked at the real estate around, around the Henderson School. And you know, a funny story is the Henderson School is so sought after and so successful that the real estate in Dorchester around the school has actually gone up in value. Um, you know, that that's the power of that school. Um, you know, but, you know, Emilio's family is here. His, my nieces, his cousins are here. My parents are nearby. Like, and right. we thought about it and it's how could we leave my business is here? You know, how could we leave New York and be yeah. essentially refugees of the education system? It's not right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as good as an opportunity, it would be for Emilio. And I'm sure they would invite him with open arms. It just didn't make sense that we had to, uproot our entire lives just to find a public school that would accept Emilio for who he is. No, it's great points. Cause you know, it's like a knee jerk reaction when you see them, see the film, it's like, well, just go there, go. Yeah. It certainly crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah. Somebody in New York pick up on this and do it here. You know, I feel like they should be a template that other schools look to and maybe that Somehow they write up their curriculum and, and their and their mission statement and get that out there as part of the education you were talking about for the, the general public, because the kids so obviously were just so comfortable, neurodiverse, neurotypical, all with each other, just accepting. It was just so beautiful. And, and like you said, you know, this little girl who wants to learn sign language for Emilio you learn about life and you learn about people. And so why, why are we still so stuck? You know, why are we still so stuck? And what, I mean, you had the chancellor, the New York city education chancellor, Richard Carranza. And he said at that one presentation, he said, if we have the will, right. And we can make changes to create fairness for all disabled students. And it sounds great in the moment, you know, and I know Hilda was affected by it. It seemed in the, in the film, but when you think about it afterwards, you think, okay, well, what's going to happen, you know, and the actions didn't follow and you weren't able to get him to speak in the film. Did you reach out to him? Yeah. And, multiple times. Yeah. Have you tried, well, I, I, I guess since that time, 
just to try to make some changes and find out what's going on. I mean, he literally had this enthusiasm and, you know, this great, great seeming passion for what he wanted to do and nothing's happened. I think everyone that's in the special education field has the best intentions. No, no one goes there to hurt children. And it's just, I think some people are maybe misinformed or maybe just too stuck in the system. Um, Richard Carranza, I think had the right intentions, uh, Unfortunately, the pandemic happened, and you know I think he left for personal reasons. Oh, he, but, he left. You know that he yeah. he did leave uh, right after the pandemic. Um, you know that I think that was a tough time, especially for the chancellor of the biggest school system in the nation. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm not sure exactly the full story there, but I think he did have the best intentions. It's just a lot of people come in that have the best intentions, and the change doesn't happen. You know, recently um, with the current administration, uh, they said with D seventy five schools, we're gonna we're gonna create a more integrated. In New York, they call it integrated, not inclusive. We're gonna integrate children that are in D seventy five, and we're gonna allow them to go to the cafeteria with other children or gym or phys ed class. And mm-hmm. you know, it's like that. That's not that's not inclusive education. That's yeah that's you're allowing children to go to lunch with other children. It's just, it kind of misses the point. I'll give you a little backstory. Um, when we were making the film, <laughs> you know, we, we tried endlessly to get people from D 75 to talk about D 75 and we were very open and Emilio hadn't even gone through the IEP process, IEP process yet. Once right. they caught wind that we were filming the IEPs and that it, that it might be in a documentary, they threatened us and they told us that we wouldn't be able to speak to anyone in the DOE if we included that footage in the film. So right away, oh, wow. I kind of knew that we might have something here <laughs> right. that they don't want people to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a big tell. Can you explain the D75 to people? Cause I was going to ask a question about that. Why, why don't you explain it? And then we can talk about it a little bit. Sure. District 75 was another one of these discoveries that I made while making the movie. Um, and really what D75 is, is a entire school district within the New York City public school system that's spread across the city, um, really to fulfill the mandate of IDEA that children be educated in their local school. And what it is, is that children basically go to these D75 schools, which are schools within schools, and they have separate entrances, they have separate floors of buildings, and they never interact with, you know, the general education students for the entire day. Um, This is a very large school district that has about 60,000 kids by estimates in New York. And it's one that you really, if you were to Google it, if you were to look online, you wouldn't, you would see that it exists, but there's nothing about it online. And, uh, you know, really what District 75 is born out of is the institutional era. You know, they shut down the institutions in the 80s and they have to absorb all these children into the educational system. So they created District 75. And so really what we have is that echo of the institutions that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, it was really stunning to me because I I wasn't aware of the District 75 schools either. And when you went back for... Emilio's annual after he was put in a partially included classroom, his first school experience. And then with all the evidence, the reports, his teacher saying how far he had come and how he improved, they literally put him in a fully segregated classroom. Am I correct? Yeah. How did that, I mean, that seems such an extreme. How do you go from 
being part in a partial inclusion, showing improvement, and then get put in a fully segregated classroom. Has that continued with him? Because we talked in the film, you talk about being stuck. Once you're in, it's tough to get out of a District 75. So could you just bring me up to date on that? And do you feel that the making of the film had anything to do with that? Potentially, do you think that was any kind of retribution on their part? I don't, and I don't mean to be so mean towards the people who are making the decisions. I'm, I'm not trying to be outrageous. I really have a, a general, con- it's a real concern. And that just seemed to be something that I wonder, human nature, you know, it can happen. Yeah, it's certainly something that's crossed my mind, you know, if the film, well, I think anytime you make a film or you tell a story, um, you're affecting outcomes, you know, and, and it's possible that making the film created a negative environment that led to some kind of retribution, but, you know, we can't know that for sure. You know, what happened is, is really unfortunate and, uh, we fought it and, you know, we, we ended up getting Emilio a a partial, you know, through basically through the due process, um, you know, we went to mediation and through mediation, we were able to come to a settlement that was a temporary fix, basically. They would temporarily allow him to go to an integrated classroom. And, uh, you know, around that time was the pandemic. And we learned a lot during the pandemic about what it means for a child to to not be amongst their peers. And uh, at that point, we also had a, a daughter on the way, and we actually left the New York City public school system and found a school system that has accepted Emilio with open arms. And, you know, so we're really, really happy about that. Was this a private school system? No, it's a public school. I There's one thing about me is that I'm a big believer in public schools. I, I think they're, they're the future of this country. I'm a product of a public school and, you know, not, not that I have anything against private schools, but, uh, you know, I, I think we have to make our public schools work. And mm-hmm. I wanted to... I knew that Emilio going into an inclusive classroom in a public school was important, not just for Emilio, but for all the other children behind them, because it sets a precedent and sets a way of thinking. It sets a mindset. So it was important for us to um, find a school district, but nothing's guaranteed. Every year is a new challenge. Um, We just had Emilio's IEP this year and, you know, they're in first grade, he's going to be fully included, which we're really excited about. And they've, they've been so helpful and so accommodating to Emilio and just trying to figure it out, problem solving. And that's what you see at the Henderson school. That, that for me was the most remarkable thing about the Henderson school was not only the environment that they've created, but how hard the professionals, the teachers, the administrators work for the students. You know, yeah. they're in the hallway between classes, problem solving, just doing little group meetings between teachers. Like, you know, how are you working with this behavior? What are you doing? You know, and just trading notes. And and that's the kind of um, environment that I think fosters a really successful inclusive education. I think that's so important that you mentioned that because, you know, having been in the field, there are teachers that are willing to work together, but there are teachers that really like to do their own thing. And that's just, you know, again, it's kind of who it is. And it's not, if it's not kind of uh, encouraged by the administration, then it's not going to happen. But that's really the way to make it work. If you're going to scaffold an IEP, then you kind of need to scaffold accordingly with the staff that's, that has these children year to year in order for, in order for everyone to be able to continue 
uh, being effective with the child. Having said that, you know, the being that the IEP is intended to scaffold towards your secondary graduation from secondary and prepare you for whatever that next step is going to be. And it's interesting you said, you know, when your first thought with Emilio being born was that he was going to be in his room the rest of his life, you know, and there are parents that don't know about the transition process. And so they get to a point where if the school hasn't brought them into the process and they don't know necessarily what to do with it, all of a sudden they're stuck. You know, what do I do? What's available to me? Is it employment? If it's not employment, if it's not college, then what is it? Uh, Comhab, you know, Dayhab, all this type of thing. So these are all real options for people. And, you know, it's important to start kind of thinking about that earlier on. I had a transition specialist on recently and we were talking and she said about 14 years old. And that's really when we to start thinking about high school and the programs for high school. But kids do change too. You know, they, you can set them on a course early on and all of a sudden the light bulb goes on and all of a sudden they're showing all these, all these abilities. And I've seen that many times too. And that's, it's such a beautiful thing. I've seen kids that just, and interestingly enough, I just want to tell you this because my school was a small private school. When the kids went to high school and they were included, all of a sudden they're doing these incredible things academically. They're involved in sports or involved after school activities. It's just, it speaks so much to what the benefit of inclusion is. If the schools aren't meeting what your hopes and expectations are for your child, how is it that you can really kind of have the hope for your child when you feel like the system's working against them? Have you had that kind of experience or that thought? Because I'm sure you have like dreams and thoughts of what Emilio's life could be or what you would like for him. Yeah, I think, I mean, pretty much from that first day, you know, when I spoke to the the geneticist at NYU, I kind of, then I decided that we want for Emilio what we wanted for the child we thought we were having, which is we want him to have all the opportunities in the world. And we want him to know that he is capable. And, um, you know, that meant for us, how that manifested itself is that we were going to include Emilio in every activity that we would have included any other child, you know, swimming lessons, music class, all, all the things that weren't just, you know, programs for children with disabilities is just programs for all kids. And, right. um, you know, and so for us, it was, at least for me, you know, it's inclusive education was just a no brainer. It's what I wanted for Emilio. And, Later in life, that's what I want for Emilio as well. It's what I hope he takes away from the experience when he's able to understand kind of what happened in the film and what happened early in his life. I want him to take away that we advocated for him and now it's time for him to take the reins and advocate for himself because no matter what people say, he's he's worth just as much as anyone else and he should have what he deserves. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And with the advocacy that okay, well, you've spent so much time with me and I really appreciate it. Just a couple more quick things. Um, yeah, no worries. I, wanted to, to, <laughs> I just want to touch upon advocacy because I've discovered in working with families, you know, who really don't go in, who go into meetings that really just don't know their rights and they kind of get taken advantage of a lot of the time. Not all the time. It's not to say, I'm not trying to judge all, there's some great school districts that will bend over backwards to do whatever. And I've seen that it's wonderful. And I just want more of that for parents, but I know parents go in not knowing their rights. They might 
be from another country, so they don't have the language fluency, they might not understand, and they quickly acquiesce to whatever's being recommended for their child. The advocacy pro- process for you, how was that? And did you, did you still incorporate that at your annuals? Do you still have an advocate with you? Yeah, um, Sarah Jo is still with Emilio, and she's yes. been... You know, a godsend to us. Uh, we we tried to go it alone. We tr- we tried to do it without her <laughs> the first time, and uh, we quickly learned that that wasn't going to be a good strategy. Um, the truth is, is that when you go into these IEP meetings, you know you want to go in with an open mind. But the truth is, you know, especially with someone with disabilities, um, significant like Emilio's, is that if they put in, if they're put in a segregated setting they might never get out of that setting. Right. And so at two and a half, three years old, they're making decisions for a child that could disenfranchise them for the rest of their lives. Exactly. And that you have to fight against that. You know, you have to do everything you can for that to not happen. Now I know some students, some parents believe their child will do better in a segregated setting. And I'm not arguing that. And, you know, if you believe that's what's right for your child, then by all means. But for the majority of people, I think you have that feeling inside that your child doesn't belong in a small class segregated from all the other children where they can gain experience and learn how to model off other students. Most people have a feeling that that's wrong. And, you know, I hope people see the film and they become empowered to fight the same fight we did and to continue because every time one child, like I said earlier, every time one child becomes included, it opens the door for so many children behind them. And that's something I learned from Aiden's story and Aiden's father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an amazing story. What a great dad. Really, really, the family is so strong supporting him. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah was, I thought she was so good at her job. I thought she was incredible. I can see why you held on to her. And uh, I hope she's doing really well and benefiting more and more families because we need more people like that in the fight. And I think an advocate really should be made available for for all parents because you like you said you weren't prepared for this you didn't know what your rights were going into this and you know you had Hilda who had a better idea of things that probably helped a little bit but still needing more with Sarah because I know from I can I can relate to Hilda because if she was in a ninth grade situation you're not really paying attention to what's going on in early intervention and 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 those early years of schooling and. So I can understand that it's as much as, you know, one on the outside might think, oh, she's a special education teacher. Why would this be so challenging for her? Why would it be so difficult? Well, it is because you don't know everything (laughs) that's going on, you know, and um, I feel like, you know, having that advocate is really important. The the biggest thing that Sarah Jo, you know, taught me is that, you know, this, this shouldn't be a fight. It should be a collaboration. And we need to figure out a way to work together. Now, unfortunately, in New York, there was no working together. Um, Where we are today, there's collaboration. It's a discussion. It's not that it's easy. It's not that they, you know, didn't recommend Emilio be put in a smaller setting or a segregated setting, but we worked together and we figured out, we problem solved, you know, and we figured it out. And, uh, you know, Sarah Jo taught us that. And I definitely recommend if every, you know, there's a lot of resources out there for parents. Um, you know, if you go to our website, forgetmenotdocumentary.com, there's some leads there, but okay. certainly advocates are are critical and every parent should know that they have the ability to get an advocate and that they can really help them 
show what their rights are. I love that that you have that on the website. That's really that's really awesome. I'll post that on my website as well and get the word out. We need to educate parents and get them a little bit more. I mean, uh, Sue Svensson is that? Am I correct? Sue Svensson, yeah, yeah. Svensson, she need we need to have passion, right? And that passion pushes us. And and I think you know your film inspires that passion. I really do. And knowing that there's people out there like you and like a Sue and, and a Sarah, these people are out there fighting. And again, like I said, there are great district heads who really, really work wonderfully. I worked with one yesterday, whatever you need, you know, we're there to do the best. And if it's not clear, let's meet again and let's clarify. After seeing your film, it's got me, I've educated myself a little bit more even. And so now as I'm representing or helping families go through the IEP process, I'm incorporating some of the things I learned from you in your film. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. One thing before I jump to the final question is you did do the due pro go through a due process. You said when in the film, when people see it, when you're speaking to the uh, chairperson and you're on zoom and she doesn't mute. And she goes and speaks to her superior about what she's going to do. And you hear exactly what's going to happen. That I had to give you and Hilda like incredible props for being able to hold it together, you know, during when she came back and you really just went, went forward as if you hadn't heard it, which was very impressive. Um, I don't know that everybody would have been able to hold themselves back. Did you follow up on that? Did what, did anything ever come of that? Did you ever discuss that with the with the chairperson? Uh, we never discussed it with them. I, I haven't spoken to her since that meeting. Okay. Um, you know, New York New York City is really really like you know. Honestly, I, I wish I could say we did a good job in that moment. We were just shell shocked. We just couldn't believe yeah. what we were hearing. Um, and you know, by the way, the. Emilio's teacher and a couple other people were on that call and also stayed silent because I don't think any of us could believe what we were hearing. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was shocking. And it, it was the first time I think that we saw a child actively like in the act of being segregated. You know, we saw the discussion happening in front of us or heard the discussion happening in front of us. And, you know, to me, that was just something that we, by the way, we had mostly finished editing the film. We had a rough cut of the film. We had a very different ending when that happened. And it was just like an instinct. We should record this. But we really believed that Emilio's IP meeting would go well that year. We knew the teacher was really happy with Emilio's progress. And we just had no idea it would go this way. And uh, to hear that someone in a room somewhere on the other end of the phone was making the decision that Emilio should be in a segregated setting was just one of the most upsetting things that I've ever encountered. And really, um, you know, the, this is why I think Ed and I are, are stronger together, because in that moment, I felt defeated. I felt deflated. And Ida said, no, let's fight. And she was right, you know, and, and we yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah, because that could, you can see why that would happen. They already made up their minds before you even went into the meeting, you know, most likely. And it, it didn't matter how Emilio did. It didn't matter how successful he was. You know, a child shouldn't have to prove himself, but Emilio did, you know, right. and, and still it wasn't enough, you know, so what is enough? What is enough? That reminds me of a, a quick question. When you were, when he was having his OT and his speech of Al, and, you know, he goes to a strange 
building. He goes to a strange room with a stranger, and now he's expected to perform. Did you ever consider the idea that, because I wonder if this is even possible, to be able to film your child at home doing these things, to be able to present as evidence, because that's a much more comfortable environment. Is that something you ever explored or thought about? And is that something that is even done or acceptable? Yeah. Yeah, so Emilio, I, I believe he had five evaluations in different subject areas. Um, some of them were done at our home, and some of them were done in a facility. Um, you know, the one the one we showed was in a facility. Uh, you know, but it, it didn't change things too much. You know, he was just he was like like myself. I'm a bad test taker. Like you know, I remember in high school knowing all this stuff, cramming, and then the test would be in front of me, and it would just look like gibberish. You know, and uh, you know, that's fine. You know, you don't have to be a great test taker, but for your future to be determined on this half hour test as a three year old, where you don't even understand the importance of it, you know, is just it's terrible. And in a system that could put you in a in a classroom and a placement that you can't get out of because of that performance when you were three years old, you know, yeah. it's, it's really the, the, the power of that moment is not lost. And I think that's, that's, uh, along with a few other <laughs> moments in the film are just kind of like, Whoa, you know, wow. Can't believe this is really happening. You we have... felt the same way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, you know, the strength that you both showed throughout your patience that you showed throughout is to be commended. And I think that it's a great message for parents to continue to fight for their child and, and not give up, even when it seems that there's no winning in the end. Um, but if we don't continue to fight, then we'll never get there. So I'm so appreciative that you made this film coming from a special ed educator myself really appreciative that you've made this film and so grateful for you and for Hilda and for putting yourselves out there and putting yourselves on film because that can't be easy to do, especially for somebody, like you said, who's quiet yourself, you're a quiet guy. It's like, you know, all of a sudden you're on camera and now you're out in the world, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's gotta be it. How does that feel? <laughs> How does that feel for you? <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't my intention to be in the film ever and, you know, it became apparent, uh, you know, part of the way through editing as the editor started to include more and more of me that I had to be in the film or else it looked like I was an absent father. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of didn't have a choice. <laughs> do you have any plans to do any kind of follow-up at all on this topic or are you going to move on to other, other areas? Do you have a new project at all? Yeah, I'm developing a, a couple of projects right now. You know, we'll see we'll see where they go. There's a, kind of a lot that goes into it um, in the early stages. But in regards to Emilio's story, it is something that I'd like to follow up when he's a little older. You know, the the process of making the film was really grueling and took a lot out of me. You know, just having to go through life and then make a film about it and just kind of having the two things kind of blend together. So I decided that I would put the camera down for a little bit and just enjoy life with Emilio and, and just be a father first before a filmmaker. And, uh, but I do hope to revisit Emilio's experience later on, because I think it's one that people have really taken a, a, a lot from, um, you know, and if, if, if by sharing Emilio's story, if he's down for it, if he's game, now that he's getting a little older and can make those decisions, I'd be happy to do that. It's great. It's great. Well, congratulations. You're doing an amazing job as a dad and you've done an amazing job for 
the public by putting this film out. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for the time tonight. I really, really appreciate it. Just I, I've been looking forward to this for weeks. <laughs> I don't think I've done. I think I don't think I've had this many questions for for someone. Um, it just it just hits where the heart is. Really appreciate the time. Well, thanks so much for having me, and you know, for for helping get word about the film out, and and for what you're doing, just trying to make a a podcast that shares these stories and tries to make the world a little better. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for that. I appreciate it. Trying. We'll keep trying, right? <laughs> Do our part. <Yeah. laughs> all right. All the best. I look forward to the the follow-up. Um, I think everyone who sees this film is going to be looking forward to the follow-up. And uh, thanks for giving us such insight tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. All the best. Take care. I want to thank Olivier again for his time, and I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I want to thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me each week to hear about topics new to you or close to your heart. I hope this podcast might inspire you to face your days more confidently, stirring a greater sense of self-love, mindfulness, an outpouring of goodness, and positive role modeling for your children while remembering to attend to the areas of your own mental, physical, and if you're inclined, spiritual health, enabling you to be all you hope to be for them. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Special Ed Rising and on my website, specialedrising.com. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. You can contact me directly with questions, comments, or if you're interested in parent coaching through my email, specialadvising at gmail.com, or my contact pages on Facebook or my website. If you'd like to share some of your success stories with the audience, please send them to my email. Let's show the world what's possible. Also, let me know if there's anything you'd like to learn more about. And until next time, peace and keep rising.